Hello again, and welcome to another Bible study in the life of David. David, who has fallen out of favour big time with Saul. David has killed Goliath, but now he's on the run. Six times the appointed king has tried to kill the anointed king. Three times the appointed king has thrown a spear at the anointed king. Three times, by other strategies, Saul has tried to get rid of David. But thanks to the Lord in his providence and David's skill in battle and the trick effected by his wife Michal and the friendship of Jonathan, David is alive, but David is on the run. At the end of chapter 19, David has lost his home, his wife, his role as an army commander, his income, his freedom. And he went on the run. He went firstly to Samuel at Ramah and shared his troubles there. And then in chapter 20, he goes to Jonathan, his friend. Now, Jonathan had had success in battle. He was a military commander. Jonathan had given to David his senior soldier's outfit and kit and sword. Jonathan had entered into a covenant of friendship with David. But Jonathan was the Prince of Wales. Jonathan was the crown prince. He was the heir apparent. Saul was assuming that Jonathan would be his successor. But Saul's also realising that this might not happen. So David went from Ramah to Jonathan. And in verse 1 of chapter 20, he says, Well, what have I done? What's my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? And in verse 2, Jonathan is in denial. Never, he says, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why should he hide this from me? It isn't so. Jonathan cannot come to terms with the fact that his father, even though he's made an oath to save David's life, still is determined to eliminate David. David is adamant and he says, there's only a step between me and death. And so in verse 4, Jonathan says, well, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. And then, like Baldrick, 3,000 years later in Blackadder, David came up with a cunning plan. Let me read it to you, verse 5. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with the king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? David says, I've got this cunning plan. Tomorrow is new moon day. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 28. It was a day for special sacrifices and the sounding of silver trumpets. He says, I'll, I'll go AWOL, I'll sky for two days and not appear in court, and you see how cross Saul gets. 
make my excuses, say, um, tell him I asked Jonathan to permission to go home to Bethlehem instead. This is a white lie. The scripture isn't recommending white lies or lies in any shape or form. It is accurately reporting what was said. David goes on, if Saul loses his rag with you, Jonathan, you will know that Saul is out to get me. After all, we're in a covenant with one another. If you think I've done something wrong, you could kill me, not your father, but I haven't. And Jonathan says, never. But he was also in cloud cuckoo land about his father. He still thinks his father will not raise a hand against David. And David says, well, how are you going to let me know the outcome of, of this test? So then again, Baldrick-like, Jonathan comes up with a cunning plan. Verse 11. Come, Jonathan said, let's go out into the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he is favourably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. David and Jonathan go out into a field, no prying eyes, no ears listening in to what's being said, and he says, I, Jonathan, I'll sound up my father, and I'll see if... Saul is favourable towards you, and I will let you know. If he wants to harm you, I'll let you know. And if you're right when you become king, don't kill me and be kind to my family. Now, now, now this is odd, isn't it? Why would Jonathan ask David, when David becomes king, not to kill Jonathan's family? It's because in the Middle East in those days, when one king took over from another king, especially by force, the new king would eliminate all the members of the family of the preceding king to remove all rivals to the throne. It was a kind of liquidation by, consolidation by liquidation. Kings would commonly slaughter rival claimants. Think of what happened in our country a couple of years ago when Boris set up his Brexit cabinet, Get Brexit Done. He expelled all the former members of the cabinet who had not supported Brexit. And then when Liz Truss became the Prime Minister, she formed her cabinet and she removed all the cabinet members who hadn't voted for her, but had voted for Rishi Sunak. Same principle. No bloodshed, of course, in our political system, but in their political system, it would be taken for granted that you would consolidate by liquidating the enemy. Now, as it happens, later in the story, as we shall see, David took the initiative to find relatives of Saul and Jonathan and to bless them in the shape of a, a boy called Mephibosheth. 
Well, Jonathan's cunning plan continues in verse 18. He says, um, right, you miss the new moon bash and hide, like you did in chapter 19, verse 2. And on the evening of the next day, I will do my Robin Hood practice. I'll come out to practice my bow and arrow. I'll send out my servant to stand near to the, the target. And if I shoot near this side of the servant, my side of the servant, that would indicate you're safe to return to court. But if I overshoot the target, that will indicate that it will be dangerous to come to court and you must flee. So what happened? David hid. Jonathan went to the New Moon Festival meal with his father. Jonathan was there. Saul was there. Abner, the commander-in-chief, was there. Guess who wasn't there? David wasn't there. David, day one, Saul allowed for an excuse. He said, well, David may be unclean. He may have eaten some unclean food and he's not able to mix for, for, for a short period of time. But day two, there was still no David. Look at verse 27. Why hasn't this son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? He can't use the word David. He's this, this, this son of Jesse. Now, this is a bit rich, isn't it? I mean, three times Saul had tried to pin David to the wall by throwing a spear at him. And now he's saying, why hasn't he turned up to this meal? Jonathan ten, then tells the white lie which David had given him. He said, oh, 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 sorry, Dad, he said. Um, David asked my permission to go to Bethlehem because his older brother, Eliab, had told him to come home for this feast. You see, Jonathan has embroidered the lie that David gave him to tell. He's invented this extra detail that Eliab, David's eldest brother, wants David back home in Bethlehem for this feast. One lie always leads to another. In verse 30, Saul's anger flared up. He's speaking to Jonathan. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, he said. Now, in the American films, colloquially, they would have said, you son of a bitch. And it's a very strong, powerful insult to Jonathan. Actually, Jonathan was the son of a perverse and a rebellious man. Actually, John was the, Jonathan was the son of a perverse and rebellious king. Jonathan was the son of perverse and rebellious Saul. Jonathan realises, sorry, Saul realises that as long as David is alive, Jonathan will never be king. Verse 31, as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And Jonathan argues with his father. He says, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And then Saul throws a spear at Jonathan. Such is Saul's anger and jealousy about David. And Jonathan thinks to himself, I'll take that as, no as a no then. And he left. The next day, Jonathan went out and gave David the secret signal. He overshot the target by some distance. The idea was that David would flee. But such was their strong emotional bond and love and care for one another, they couldn't help but meeting up again for the very last time. David showed very deep respect for Jonathan in verse 41. He bowed to him three times and they kissed and they wept. 
And Jonathan reminded David of David's promise not to exact revenge on Jonathan's family, which David would never have done anyway. And he said, Yahweh is our witness. And then David went on the run again. Now in chapter 21, David, who had fled from Samuel to Jonathan, now flees from Jonathan to a place called Nob. It's a village or a town not far north of Jerusalem. And it seems as if the Ark of the Covenant had been moved from Kiriath-Jerim to Nob. And the priest there was Ahimelech. And when Ahimelech sees David, he's trembling. Why is he trembling? He's trembling because he knows that David is in bad odour with the king. And if the king hears that Ahimelech has been helping David, well, ooh, Ahimelech isn't quite sure how he would cope with that. David is a marked man. And David tells another white lie. He says in verse 2, I'm on his majesty's secret service and my men are hiding. The king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I'm sending you on. The king hadn't sent him on a mission at all. David again is using a white lie to get himself out of a bit of a hole. And then he says to Ahimelech, give me five loaves, will you, for me and, and a few men that I've got with me, with me, my little gang of supporters. But the only bread that Ahimelech had available was consecrated bread. It was show bread. It was the bread that lived in the tabernacle. Now, you remember in the tabernacle, the holiest place was the Holy of Holies. That's where the ark was kept. But outside it was another small room on which was a table. And on this table were loaves, 12 loaves of bread in, 12 loaves of bread in two rows there in the holy place. And every Sabbath they had to be replaced. Every Sabbath the priests would come in, eat the bread. It reminded them of the manna which had fallen in the wilderness to feed the people of Israel. Every Sabbath they would eat those loaves and replace them with new ones. But only priests were allowed to eat it and it could only be eaten in the holy place. So Himelech had to weigh up now, what should he do? Should he obey the ritual law and protect the ritual cleanness of this bread or should he feed these hungry men? Well, firstly, he wanted to make sure the men were clean, ritually clean, which they were. And then he gave them the bread. But notice in verse 7, there was somebody there called Doeg. Now, one of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. We'd love to know why he was detained in the tabernacle. There's no explanation given, and nobody has come up with a very bright solution either. He is the commander, or he's the chief shepherd of Saul's flocks, even though he's not an Israelite himself. And his name will crop up later. Remember it. It's a bad sign. Well, in verse 8, David asks Ahimelech for a weapon. And David is given Goliath's sword. Fancy that. Goliath's sword, the very instrument with which David had beheaded Goliath, which was, at one time in David's tent, has found its way to Nob. It's there behind the Ark of the Covenant, or, or thereabouts, and the priest says, you can have that one, I'll get that one for you. 
Now this story is the only story referred to by Jesus from the book of Samuel about David. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus and the disciples were walking through some fields and there was some corn and the disciples just idly helped themselves to a few ears and crushed it and ate the, ate, the, ate the grain. Pharisees said that was working on the Sabbath day, that's doing the work of farming, that's reaping and winnowing on the, far, on the Sabbath. That's strictly forbidden by God's law. And Jesus said, don't be silly. The Sabbath wasn't made, people weren't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for the benefit of people. Don't put ceremonial law above human need. That's what the priest and Levite had done in the parable of the Good Samaritan. If they'd got themselves, if they'd touched the blood of the poor man who'd been wounded in that parable, they would have been unclean and not able to participate in the services at the temple for a while until they became clean. They put ceremonial law before the need to bless a human being in need. Ahimelech got it right. He blessed David with the food which otherwise would have been regarded as being holy food. So David is on the run. He's gone from Samuel to Jonathan, from Jonathan to Ahimelech, and he's now so unwelcome in Israel, you'll never guess the next place he goes to. He goes to Gath. Gath. Gath is a Philistine town. Gath is Goliath's town. In Gath... There were many Philistine veterans from the battle when Goliath was killed. In Gath, there are many widows of soldiers that David and his army have killed. He must have been desperate to go to Gath. Let me read chapter 21, verse 10. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he feigned insanity in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at that man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And David left Gath. The king of Gath, Gath was Achish. As we shall see later, both in this story and in a, in a following one, Achish was a gullible man. But Achish's commanders were not gullible men. And when they saw David and some of his troops coming into Gath, they smelt a rat. They remembered his record. They said, he's the king. He's not actually the king. They think he's the king. And then they quote the girl's song that David has killed 10,000s of Philistines. The commanders don't trust David at all. And David realises what a fix he's in. Indeed, verse 12 is the only occasion I can find when David was afraid. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. Psalm 34 fits in this story. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his trouble. And Psalm 56, my adversaries pursue me all day long. In their pride, many are attacking me. 
Both of those psalms in the introductions are located when David was in Gath with Achish. And David decided that discretion is the better part of valour. And so David earned himself an Oscar by pretending to be mad, by salivating and scratching doors and acting the part of a madman. And David got away. The appointed king has got the anointed king on the run. Now again I ask, how can we get some blessing, some benefit from these two chapters? Something will help us in our walk with Christ. Well, firstly I think we see the value of a good friendship. David and Jonathan, human friends, shared the same faith, close to one another. They could rely on one another. They told each other the truth. David had one dear friend he could turn to. And we all need human friends who share our faith. We all need human friends to whom we can turn when our faith is under attack. We all need a loyal friend in, who is also one of Christ's. Another thing we see here is that David covenanted with Jonathan to be kind to Jonathan's family when he, David, finally came to the throne and came to power. In other words, don't bear a grudge. Some of these descendants of Saul and of Jonathan may well have been anti-David men or women or children. But David didn't hold a grudge. He didn't hold bitterness in his heart against somebody who may in the past have done him wrong. He was prepared to forgive. Another thing we learn from this is about lying. David suggested a white lie to Jonathan and Jonathan, when he passed it on, embroidered it and told a further white lie. One lie leads to another lie, leads to something worse. What did Jesus say of this? I'm paraphrasing. Be so truthful, you don't need to take an oath to force you to tell the truth. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. As believers in Jesus, our words should be entirely trustworthy. And on the matter of oath-taking, because David had taken oath and did Jonathan too, to be friends with one another, we remind ourselves of the two oaths many of us have taken. One was at our baptism, when we promised for the rest of our lives to follow the Lord Jesus. Don't go back on that oath. Don't turn it into a lie. And for many of us, on our wedding day, we took an oath to our spouse. Don't go back on that oath. Don't turn that oath into a lie. But in both these chapters, I think there's a higher point. In both these chapters, we see God's anointed one being harassed by an enemy. David is the anointed one with a little a, a lowercase a. He is a lowercase messiah. Jesus is the anointed one with an uppercase a and an uppercase m, the messiah. Now, just as David, the anointed one, was harassed by his enemies... Jesus was harassed by Herod, the king of the Jews, by his own family who thought he'd gone loopy-loo, by evil spirits, by Pharisees and Sadducees, by Judas, by a Jewish court, by a Roman court. And today, Jesus' kingdom is being harassed 
by the devil and the Antichrist. The anointed one, the great anointed one, Jesus, is under attack, was under attack, and his kingdom is still under attack. But what does Jesus say of us? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If you are one of the anointed ones, I'll explain that in a moment, you will be under harassment too. And Jesus says nothing will harm you because you're in Christ. Now, Jesus is the anointed one. He received harassment. David was the anointed one. He received harassment. You are an anointed one. What scripture do I have to justify that? 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. That's a bit of a mouthful, and I couldn't find a much clearer translation of it. But what John is saying, he's writing to his readers, and he's saying, you are anointed ones. Because when you were born of the Spirit, in the new birth, and when the Spirit lived, came to live in you, you are anointed. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Don't despise that. He remains in you. And don't let anyone take it away from you. David was anointed. Jesus was anointed. We are anointed. And because we are in Christ, we will face harassment. But because we're in Christ, we are safe. No harm will become us, ultimately, thanks to his grace and power. Amen. Amen.